amplify your career through training and development solutions specifically designed for federal government professionals. From courses to help you attain or retain certification, to individualized coaching services, to programs that hone your leadership skills and business acumen, Management Concepts optimizes your professional development. Online, in person, individually, or groups, it's training that's measurably better. Learn more at managementconcepts.com. That's managementconcepts.com. Hello, everybody. I hope that you're all doing well. On this week's episode, we have a collection of three stories that will have you questioning whether the reality that you live in is real or not. Let's get into it as we drift further into Mr. Creep's mind. If you ever see something peering at you from around a corner, ignore it. Written by J.L. Goodwin, 1990. Have you ever had the experience of swearing you saw something at the edge of your vision, peering at you from around a corner before? I'm fairly sure a good chunk of people have. Maybe even you listening to this right now. Regardless of whether you're in a crowded area such as a mall or school or home by yourself, you've more than likely had the strange sensation of being watched, usually accompanied by a slight shiver down your spine. You'll snap your head up from whatever it is you're doing or whoever you're talking to, and nothing will be there. But you always swear that at the very edge of your vision you saw something, a slight blur as if something was there but seemed to anticipate your move and pull back out of sight. I'm fairly certain most of you just end up shaking it off. You shake your head at telling yourself that nothing was there and go back to what you were doing. That's a good thing because it's what keeps you safe. It's what keeps you alive. Like many of you for years, I always wrote seeing the slight blur at the edge of my sight off as a trick of my eyes. Being so focused on one particular area that the rest of your vision goes fuzzy. As my mother once told me when I was a child, told her that I had seen something at the doorway to my bedroom. And as I grew older, I simply took it as fact. The way every child takes their parents' wisdom to heart. And once I became an adult, I simply waved it away completely. That was until one night. You see, as a 30-something-year-old bachelor who makes just above the line of adequate pay, I live by myself in a small one-bedroom apartment. It means having to live farther out from the city where I work, but I prefer living alone over not having to make the rather long drive to and from work every day. And because my free time during the day is close to zero, I'm also a bit of a night owl. This particular night about three and a half weeks ago, I was up late, sitting at my kitchen table with my laptop out in front of me. I was surfing the net, looking for good deals on eBay for a new DVD-VCR combo since my old one broke, when the feeling came over me. The small but noticeable shiver shot up my spine, and at the upper edge of my vision just below where my hair began to drift into my eyes, I saw it. It was a black and a silver blur. At least, that's what it looked like to me. I lifted my head quickly, looking toward the corner that I had seen it. My kitchen is in the back of the apartment and where the table is set up. I was looking back out into the living room. 
The bedroom also sits next to the kitchen, and the wall separating the two stretches out a bit, causing a rather large blind spot from where I sat. Of course, when I looked up, there was nothing there. For a few more seconds, I simply sat, staring at the corner. Nothing moved. There was no sound except for the quiet whine of my laptop's fan and the hum of the fridge. I snorted. Really, Eddie? You're jumping at shadowy blurs now. What are you, eight years old again? And with a shake of my head, I went back to the computer screen. The hours seemed to pass by at an accelerated pace into my surprise when I checked the clock at the bottom right of my laptop screen. The time said a quarter to three in the morning. Holy crap, I stayed up way too freaking late, I whispered to myself. I would barely be getting four or five hours of sleep. And so, with a yawn, I shut my computer down and put it back into its carrying bag. As I stood up, though, a slight feeling of apprehension wiggled its way to the forefront of my mind. I lifted my head from, zipping up the bag and again, stared at the corner. This time, there was nothing there. No blur at all. Recalling what my mother had told me years ago, I stood up and slowly stepped into the center of the kitchen where I could see around the corner. I felt a small pang of embarrassment at the relief that washed over me as I saw nothing was there. What next? You gonna start believing in the Easter Bunny and Santa Claus again? I muttered to myself, and with that, I entered my bedroom, shutting the door behind me and climbing into bed. For a moment, the image of the blur danced behind my eyelids, and then the Sandman overtook me plunging me into a deep and dreamless sleep. The next day passed by like I was wading through quicksand. Of course, it likely had to do with how tired I was, but I got through the day and soon enough I was back home. This time, I resolved to get to bed before midnight, 1am at the latest, so I didn't go on my computer. Instead, I watched some TV and indulged myself in a few online matches in Battlefield 1. Soon enough, the clock sitting next to the TV displayed at 12.35 in big red numbers. Alright, time for bed, I thought and I stood up, shutting off the TV and Xbox. I decided that I would get myself a drink before bed and I moved to the fridge. Opening it, I pulled a pitcher of juice out and grabbing a glass from my nearby cabinet, I poured myself some. The cold liquid felt good sliding down my throat and I let out a relieved sigh. For a moment, I closed my eyes. Apart from the sound of a diesel truck passing by outside and the ticking of the clock over the sink, all was silent. And I loved it. I placed the glass in the sink to wash tomorrow and I turned to take the pitcher back to the fridge. And nearly dropped it at what I saw. As I turned around, I had a clear view across the kitchen and living room toward the small alcove where my front door sat, and for just a second I saw the same black and silver blur, pulling back out of sight from the edge of my vision. Except this time I knew that it wasn't just a trick of my vision, or a strand of hair flashing in front of my face. Hey! I reflexively yelled out. I didn't expect any response and I didn't get any, but now I knew for certain. There was something or someone there. I felt my pulse rapidly quicken and my heart began to beat like a drum against my chest. 
Great. Did somebody decide to break in and try to burgle my apartment? Of all places tonight. I looked around quickly for something to defend myself. My eyes fell upon the block, holding all my kitchen knives and moving quickly. I pulled the largest ones out and turned back towards the entryway. There was no movement now, but I noticed a change in the atmosphere. Gone was the simple, vacant air the apartment always held. Now it seemed to contain a charge to it, as if seeing the figure had been something they hadn't planned on, as if I weren't supposed to have seen it, probably figured that I would already be in bed. Well, they have a massive surprise coming their way. I cleared my throat. You back there, I called out simply. Again, no reply. I spoke again. Look, I saw you peeking around the corner of the entryway. The jig is up. I don't want to fight right now, so I'll make you a deal. If you turn around right now and leave, I won't call the cops on you and I won't come at you with this knife. Just go find somebody else to rob, okay? Still, there was silence. But the tension in the room seemed to have racked up more than a few notches at my words. I waited for a minute, feeling my temper begin to flare. Does this idiot seriously believe that if he stays quiet, I'll believe he's not there and go to bed or something? It wouldn't be a surprise. The people who usually broke into houses and apartments in my neighborhood were usually strung out on the drug of choice for the week, or in all truthfulness, simply not that bright. I let out an annoyed growl. If I have to come over there, it's not going to end well for you, I said. At six feet even and in good shape, I could easily take on whoever it was. The silence was almost deafening. Okay, the heck with this man. I strode quickly across the room, the knife held out in front of me in a vice-like grip. I stopped for a moment, drawing in all my strength and reflexes. For a moment though, an odd sensation seemed to wash over me like a wave. To my surprise, it was a bolt of fear. But a fear of what? Yes, it was a bit dangerous to about to confront a cornered intruder, but fear shouldn't be one of the experienced emotions. Shaking it away, I put all the muscle into my legs and I leapt around the corner. There was nobody there. For a moment, I simply stood there feeling dumbfounded. Uh, what? I blurted out. I knew for a fact that I had seen someone there. It hadn't been a trick of my eyes and I hadn't heard the front door open. In fact, looking down at it now, I saw the little knob on the door handle was, in fact, twisted into the locked position. As I stared down at it, a sudden huge shiver rushed up my spine, combined with the feeling of being stared at intensely. In fact, it almost felt as though whoever were doing the staring were almost directly behind me. On instinct, I whirled around, slashing out with the knife as hard as I could. But again, there was nothing. No one stood behind me. The oddest thing, though, was that as soon as I spun around, the feeling of eyes boring into the back of my skull had ceased, as if the watcher had simply blinked out of existence the moment that I turned. But the tension in the apartment did not go away. In fact, it almost seemed to intensify. And it kept me on edge. Enough to the point that I searched the entire place. I went into the bathroom, drawing back the shower curtain. I went into my bedroom and opened up the sliding doors to the closet. I even opened up both closets in the living room, 
pulling out all the coats and boxes that somebody could hide behind. But I found nothing, no trace of anybody. Even still though, when I went to bed, I locked the door to my bedroom behind me just in case, and I slept with the knife on my bedside table. The next morning when I awoke, the feeling had vanished from the apartment. It was almost as if the daylight had banished the tension-filled aura away, and I was glad for it. Along with the fact that I had a full day of work ahead of me, and so with a final look around, I locked the front door behind me, climbed into my old but well-taken-care-of Mitsubishi Starion, and made the two-and-a-half-hour drive into the city for work. The day passed by without much fuss, aside from a mandatory team meeting my idiot boss decided to impose on us during a lunch break. The monotony calmed me down somewhat, and I began to mentally tease myself for how bent out of shape I had gotten last night. I even decided to tell some of the guys at the water cooler about it. Everyone, of course, had a good laugh over it. Well, Ed, if I ever need somebody to slice away at the dark emptiness of my house, I'll be sure to give you a call. Mark, one of my co-workers, joked, causing everybody, including myself, to guffaw some more. The joking shoved it completely out of my mind, and before I knew it, the evening had arrived. I packed up my belongings back into the car and made the journey back home, still chuckling a bit to myself and humming along to the songs playing on the car's radio. As I pulled into my apartment building's parking lot and into my space at close to ten at night, however, I saw something which tore away that relaxed, relieved emotion from me like it had been a loved one in the grip of a tsunami. My complex is set in a U-formation with two floors, sort of similar to how an older built motel looks like. My apartment was the second one on the top floor, and from where I sat in my car, I could look up and see the living room window of my place between the slats of the walkway's railing. As I always did when I left, I had twisted shut the white Venetian blinds so nobody walked past the window could look into my place. Someone was peering down at me from between the blinds. From between my blinds. I felt my blood turn to ice as I saw the obvious parting in the middle of them, signifying that someone was pulling down on a section of them, and then doubly so when they just as quickly snapped it back into position. Crap, I mentally hissed. I fumbled around in my coat pockets looking for my cell phone. I let out a groan as I suddenly realized that I had forgotten it when I had left home that morning, which meant that it was up there, with them. I gazed around for a moment at the darkened windows of the other units, but I knew that none of my neighbors would be of any help to me. Long gone were the days of neighbors looking out for each other. They would inevitably tell me either to find a way to call the cops myself, or straight up tell me to get lost that it wasn't their problem, which unless I wanted to drive straight to my local police station over 20 minutes away, the only other option was to go in myself. Hissing through gritted teeth, I pulled the door handle and kicked the door open, letting the chilly night air flood into the car's interior. I reached down and yanked on the trunk release before climbing out and slamming the door. Crossing to it, I pulled the glass hatch up and fumbled around inside for a moment, before withdrawing a tire iron from the mess of crap cluttering up the trunk. Slamming the hatch closed, I took a deep breath, then leaving my car's engine running just in case I needed to make a quick getaway. 
I took the stairs to the top floor, two at a time. A moment later, I was standing at the head of the landing, staring at the Tweety Bird yellow painted door of my apartment. My heart pounded in my chest as I took a step forward, reaching out slowly and gripping the handle in one hand. I gave it a small twist to see if it would turn. But it stayed in place, showing that the door was still locked, or whoever is in there had locked it behind them. Swallowing a bit, I reached into my pants pocket for my house keys with my free hand. Pulling them out, I slid them as quietly as possible into the lock in the center of the doorknob. I took a deep breath, knowing as soon as I twisted the key that the doorknob would turn with it as well. God, please don't let me get jumped as soon as I step inside. I quietly whispered towards the dark sky. I let out the deep breath and then raised the tire iron over my head and twisted the key. The knob turned and I immediately pushed the door open. It swung inwards before hitting the wall with a soft clunk. The porch light cast a long narrow shaft of light into the dark room beyond, reflecting off my flat screen TV on the far side of the living room. Aside from that though, the place was as dark and silent as a tomb. My pulse quickened as I slowly reached inside, my hands searching for the light switch. Part of me feared that as I blindly searched, that I would suddenly feel the vice-like grip seize my wrist and pull me into the dark. The mental image sent a shiver of fear through me, just as my fingers found the plastic switch. Flicking it on, the living room suddenly became a wash in the bright overhead light. Still holding the tire iron over my head, I took a tentative step inside. The atmosphere in here had changed again. Gone was the tensed one which had accompanied seeing whoever that was the other night. In its place was an almost threatening one, and realizing it set me even farther on edge. Moving quickly, I leaned around the corner, giving me a glimpse of the kitchen beyond. Both it and the living room were empty, from initial appearances anyways, but that still left the bathroom and the kitchen. Something caught my eye, however, which filled me with relief. My cell phone still sat where I had left it, in the middle of the living room coffee table. I moved slowly, trying to stay as quiet as possible, so whoever was hidden wouldn't realize that I was going for my phone and bum-rush me. I held my breath as I passed by the half-open doors of both my bathroom and bedroom, stepping around the couch and picking up my phone. I decided right there and then that I would step back outside and call the cops. There is a fine line between being courageous and being stupid, and searching this place on my own with just a tire iron to defend myself, especially knowing that somebody was hiding somewhere in here, was firmly on the latter side of that line. I turned to begin quickly walking back to the open front door, but something stopped me, something which made me freeze. There was a small section of eggshell white wall between the door to one of my closets and the bathroom door. Something had been written there. No, not written, I realized. It had been scratched into the wall. My eyes flashed over the three words etched into the paint and plaster. Vidir nos potest. My head swam with confusion, trying to place what language it was. And that was when I felt my heart almost stop in my chest my breath along with it. 
Out of the left corner of my vision, I saw the door to my bedroom had slowly but noticeably swung open a bit. That wasn't what had caused my heart to skip a beat, though. It was seeing the black and silver blur again. Oh, crap. Before the thought had finished in my head, I was dashing for the door. Out of the corner of my vision, there was a sudden blur of movement as the black and silver figure came flying out of the room. It never made a sound, though. I dodged it somehow and flew around the corner, snatching the doorknob in my free hand and yanking the door shut behind me. Twisting the keys to the right to lock the door again, I tore them from the lock and thundered back down the stairs, yanking the door to my car open and crashing into the driver's seat. Slamming the door shut and locking it, I dropped the tire iron and fumbled with my phone. As the voice of the emergency dispatcher came on the other end of the line, and I stumbled through explaining what had happened. I kept my gaze locked through the windshield on the front door and the living room window. I swear that I saw the blinds part again as I heard the wail of the police sirens approaching. When the police arrived, I jumped out of my car and quickly explained what had happened. They took my house keys from me with their pistols drawn, climbed quickly up the steps to my place, with neighbors opening their doors and parting their blinds to see what was happening, they unlocked the door and quickly entered. A few minutes later, they both reappeared and waved for me to come up and join them. I'm sorry, sir, but whoever it was, they're gone, one of them said to me. He then showed me that the window in the back of the apartment, which was in the back of the kitchen and opened out onto a main road, had been opened the mosquito screen having been cut to allow somebody to jump out. I stared out and down at the two-story drop. It would hurt to jump from this height, but it's doable, I thought. The cops again did a sweep of the apartment, turning the entire place upside down with me there and again found no one. They both promised to stay the night outside, to keep an eye on the place in case the person attempted to try and come back and they would make sure an officer was posted outside for the next week or so. It made me feel more than a bit better. What about the writing scratched into the wall? I asked them, pointing to it. The first officer shrugged. I honestly don't know, sir, he said, giving me an apologetic look. That's a language I've never seen before. That's when the second spoke up. It's Latin, he said simply. We both looked at him. He was staring at the writing with a bit of a confused, if not apprehensive look on his face. But what freaking lowlife criminal knows Latin? He murmured quietly, more to himself than us. Well, what does it say? I asked him. For a few seconds, he didn't answer. He turned and looked at me. He can see us. That's roughly what it says. I felt a massive chill shoot up my spine at his words, though I couldn't understand why, not at the time. As promised, the officers watched over the apartment the rest of the night, and for the next week, there was always at least one cop car sitting outside. It was also thankfully quiet that next week. I was almost able to feel completely calm, putting the frightening experience out of my mind and allowing my life to regain a bit of normalcy. I didn't feel any sensation of being watched. One thing I did do though was type the Latin words into Google in, in an attempt to see if anything came up, but nothing did. 
I decided to push the last remnants out of my conscious mind. And as the weekend came, I looked forward to sitting on the couch, playing video games all night, and having a bottle of hypnotic to myself. Saturday night, I played until almost one in the morning, before stumbling my drunk butt to the bed. I passed out almost as soon as my head hit the pillow. I'm honestly not sure what woke me up, but when I slid my eyes open, it was still to darkness. I felt my head begin to spin, showing that I wasn't fully sober yet. I shot a look at the bright red glowing numbers of the clock on the bedside table next to my head. 3.30 a.m. Um, what the heck? Do I have to go to the bathroom? What woke me up? Everything stopped. My mind froze mid-thoughts and my heart fluttered in my chest. My breath hitched in my chest as my eyes adjusted to the dark staring across the room. I was looking at my bedroom closet, which when I had fallen asleep, I had looked over and seen that it was closed. But now as I stared, I realized the sliding right door had been pulled back some. A chill ran through me, and then it was replaced by a bone-chilling shiver of fear as my eyes locked onto something else. Something which stared at me from around the edge of the half-open closet door. It was the black and silver blur. Except this time it wasn't a full-on blur. I'm not sure whether it was the darkness or the alcohol still flowing through my veins, but I could see it a bit more clearly now. I couldn't see much though. Just what looked like two large, very dark eyes glaring at me. I felt frozen in place, fear quite literally paralyzing me to the bed. As I lay there, my eyes widened to the size of saucers. I slowly became aware of something else, something which I'll never forget, which I can still hear in the silence. It was whispering. It was a soft and hissing sound, sounding as grating as sandpaper, but it almost seemed to be growing in intensity, as if it knew I was awake and was staring at it, and it was not even remotely happy about it. The words were indistinguishable at first, but as the voice grew louder, the words became clearer. But they weren't any words that I knew, or a language I knew. Tolekinos fidere potes. Tolekinos fidere potes. Tolekinos fidere potes. I recognized some of the words as the same as the words written on my wall. It was speaking in Latin. The voice grew angrier and angrier turning from a hiss into almost a demonic growl, and then it went deadly silent. It almost seemed as though the entire world had gone dead silent, as if everything were being sucked out of the world. And that's when I saw the hand reach up from underneath the bed to grab onto the sheets, less than a foot away from my face, a hand which more resembled a claw tipped with five razor-sharp fingernails. There's more than one, and it's under my bed. Seeing that hand, that claw reaching up from under the bed broke the paralyzing hold that had come over me. I flew up in bed, flinging the sheets up and forward and letting out an involuntary scream. Instantly, there seemed to be a world of motion in the bedroom. Black and silver blurs seemed to appear from everywhere, from the closet from under the bed, even from inside my armoire that I used to store candy books and CDs. And they were all coming for me. But I was already moving, 
practically flying from my open bedroom door. Behind me, I caught the blurs following after me. They were terrifyingly fast, but they stayed silent. Silent, that is, except for the mantra they all suddenly began to angrily whisper. The same words that I had heard the one in the closet angrily hiss. They chanted, just loud enough for me to hear, but not enough for anybody else in the complex to. I ran through the bedroom door, grabbing it and slamming it shut behind me. A moment later, I felt the push from the other side as whatever the things were attempted to force it open. Looking around, I spied a kitchen chair within reach and grabbed it, forcing it under the handle to block the door. I knew it wouldn't hold for long, though. I could hear the creatures practically throwing themselves at the door. I used the time that I had to grab my computer bag along with the clothes that I had left strewn on my living room floor and my cell phone. I had just snatched my car keys from their hook when I realized that they had gone silent. Their assault on the door had stopped. For a split second, I felt a wave of relief and then I saw something out of the corner of my eye from the kitchen. My blood turned to ice as I realized the cabinet doors under the sink were beginning to open, and that demonic growl of a mantra was beginning to pour out from under it. So was my bathroom door in both closets. Oh, screw me. I whimpered and then dashed for my door, snatching up my sneakers as they rushed out from their new hiding spots. I unlocked and threw the door open, dashing out into the night and yanking it shut behind me. Bolting down the steps, I jammed the keys into the door of my car and unlocked it. I piled into the driver's seat and yanked the door shut, slamming down on the lock button. Forcing the key into the ignition and twisting it, the engine roared to life. I knew that I should simply call the cops, but I knew at this point that if I did, when they arrived, they would have all have disappeared. Maybe even make it look like another person had jumped out of the window again. They're that smart. Instead, I jammed the shifter into reverse and peeled out of the parking lot. As I left, I saw the blinds part again as they watched me go. I haven't been back to my apartment in weeks. I drove all through the night fighting back the waves of nausea from the alcohol still in my system until I made it to the city where I work. I rented a motel room and ever since then I've been staying there. I figured I could just eventually have movers go and collect my things from the apartment and give my 30 day notice. There was no way that I was ever going back there. I thought that I would be safe in the city. I thought that I would be safe anywhere else but my apartment. That they were bound to that place. I was wrong. So very wrong. Because I've started seeing them everywhere now. I've seen them while out in crowded places such as the mall or Walmart. I've seen them in my coworkers' houses when I'm invited over by them as they tell me they're concerned about how I'm beginning to act. I'm even seeing them at work, peering at me from around the corner of hallways, from behind the water cooler. I've even caught them glaring at me from around the corner of my office cubicle. They whisper that horrible Latin mantra to themselves, now added with evil chuckles, and whisper it to me. I ended up entering the phrase into Google Translate to understand what they were saying, but wish that I never had, because knowing the meaning of those words fills me with an existential dread and terror that I've never felt before. Take away he who can see us. You need to listen to me now, you listening to this account. I don't know what these creatures are, 
I wish I did because then I might have some way of fighting back against them. I don't even know what they fully look like. I've only seen their eyes and their clawed hands. The only thing that I can deduce is that they are incalculably old. Centuries old, maybe even eons. I now understand that those blurs I saw all throughout my life, from the corner of my vision, were them. They've lived alongside us all for of humanity's existence, staying just out of sight. They like it that way. They don't like us humans knowing about them. But I know others, not just myself, have likely seen them. How many strange cases of people disappearing in their homes with all the doors and windows locked from the inside have you heard about? I know that I've heard more than a few, and I think I know what happened to them. They saw these creatures, and when they realized the people could see them, they came for them. They wore them down mentally and physically, like they're doing to me right now. I'm afraid to fall asleep, afraid that I'll wake up to see them right in front of me. I feel so weak now. I couldn't fight them off if I tried, and they know that. They knew that about the others, and that's when they dragged them away to God only knows where. I know that I'm going to find out soon enough, because all of today they've been getting closer. I caught one trying to grab my leg under my desk. That wasn't the scariest encounter that I've had. The worst was driving back to the motel, looking in the rearview mirror of my hysterion, and seeing one of them glaring at me from just behind the rear seat. It caused me to nearly crash into a telephone pole. I've locked myself into my motel room, which is where I'm recounting this. I don't have much time left. They're beginning to poke their heads out from everywhere in here. Multiple that pop their heads up from under the bed, watching me frantically typing this out on my laptop. And they're all laughing at me. Today is when they're going to take me. They know that I know that, and I can't do anything more now. I can't run from them anymore. I'm too tired, too weak. But I can do one final thing. I can warn you. I can post this account here as a warning. I know for a fact that most of you won't believe me, and that's fine. It may even be what saves you in the end. But please listen to me when I say this. If you ever think you see something peering at you from around a corner, if you ever catch a glimpse of a black and silver blur disappearing just out of sight, don't investigate it. Just ignore it. Tell yourself it's nothing and go about with your lives. Because you don't ever want them to realize that you can see them. There's nothing quite like the smell of fresh-baked bread coming out of the oven. What if I told you that you could get all of that deliciousness with none of the time and work involved? Well, you can from Wild Grain. Wild Grain is the first ever Bake From Frozen subscription box for sourdough breads, fresh pastas, and artisanal pastries. Wild Grain uses a slow fermentation process that's easier on your belly, lower in sugar, and rich in nutrients and antioxidants. Unlike typical supermarket bread, every item bakes in 25 minutes or less as well, which is very convenient. Wild Grain is offering delicious products such as an ancient grain sourdough loaf and fresh artisan fettuccine pasta. I received both of these items in my Wild Grain box and both were absolutely delicious. They tasted better than the regular stuff that I would buy at the store and much more fresh. My favorite had to be the ancient grain sourdough loaf. 
It was great for sandwiches or just good on its own with some butter and oil. And I felt good after eating it, not weighed down or too full. Plus, for every new member, Wild Grain donates six meals to the Greater Boston Food Bank, so you can eat good and do good all at the same time. All you have to do is sign up at wildgrain.com creep and choose which type of box you want to receive and how often. It's easy to reschedule, skip, or cancel. Plus, for a limited time, you can get $30 off the first box, plus a free croissants in every box. When you go to wildgrain.com slash creep to start your subscription. Now you heard me, free croissants in every box. And $30 off your first one when you go to wildgrain.com slash creep. That's wildgrain.com slash creep or you can use promo code creep at checkout. I work as a warden between realities. My last case got out of control. Written by Cecily, 1987. I must break the silence. I must let everybody know the dangers that exist in this world and others. To start, this world is not the only world. There is another world that lays on top of it, sometimes under it. They intertwine around like snakes in mating, or snakes in battle. Some places, there are openings where worlds bleed through into each other. There is the world that you are familiar with. Earth, the one dominated by Homo sapiens in war. The one with rudimentary space travel and complex machinery for the purpose of entertainment. The other one, well, the other one is vastly different. It's not called Earth. Its name is unable to be expressed in human language. It's a place where reality is a strange intangible thing, more able to be manipulated. Thoughts in the physical define one another and play off one another. The concepts intertwine like braided cords. The other world is overflowing with things extremely limited on Earth. It would be called magic if that simplifies it for you. But of course, it's much more and some of it bleeds through the realities into Earth's realm to be used by humans. Sometimes entire entities from other realities bleed through, either by accident or on purpose. That's where I come in. I have different titles in different places, but the best way to describe my job would be a reality warden, a watcher between the worlds. I patrol the gaps between dimensions, the place where our worlds blend together and things that don't belong slip through. You see, there are a lot of reasons for creatures to sneak across the plains to enter Earth's realm. Just because Earth is low on magic, doesn't mean that it doesn't have tons of ingredients that magic users deeply desire. This is the reason that I'm on my current assignment. It's why I'm high up in a tree in a Washington State Park, scouting out the surrounding forest. Something has illegally crossed to Earth to gather spell ingredients, and I have to catch this creature before a lot of people are killed. I leap from the tree and land with ease. One of the magical runes embedded in my bandolier vibrates softly, letting me know that something is amiss. I look down on my feet to see one black boot untied. I sigh and lean over to retie it. 
and I could have easily tripped. It's always the small things I forget. The prey I'm after is a clever one, a fugitive from across the gap. He is a bane of any plane of existence that he walks upon. I've been on his trail for years. I'll be sure to not let him slip away tonight. Chizar the Cruel, or Chris to his fellow lowlifes. He traffics in illegal goods between the realms. He also traffics in people. Oh yeah, I forgot to tell you that he's a Sasquatch, or a Bigfoot, or whatever you want to call them. They are not native to Earth, they come from large colonies across the gap. In Chisar's circles, humans are in high demand. Earth may not have a lot of magic, but humans contain it within them, almost literally. Their organs and parts can be used for a myriad of magical potions and spells. Humans fetch a high price in the black market, dead or alive. Living humans can be bred for an infinite stock of magical ingredients. I may tell you about the horrors of the breeding camps, the human mills some other time. It's a good cautionary tale but has no bearing on this current case. I make my way towards the cabin a mile away, a crumpled flyer in my hand. Chisar has been spotted in the area, whether from sloppiness or intentional. Now, he has a group of Bigfoot hunters after him. The flyer is from a signpost back in town. It seems that the United Sasquatch Association was throwing a big party at the cabin before taking off into the forest with cameras, guns, and a lot of booze to finally catch the elusive sapien. I needed to get to the Bigfoot hunters before they actually did find him. I pray they haven't yet. They really don't want to cross paths with the Chisar the Cruel. A quick look at the USA's Facebook page showed me that they were at least 15 members deep of the cabin. I was surprised that that many people still took Bigfoot seriously. We had done so well discrediting witnesses throughout the years. Of course, it could be that the members were just looking for an excuse to run around in the woods with guns. I heard in town that they were trying to film a pilot episode for the Travel Channel, whatever that meant. I was quickly dodging between the trees at a light jog when I heard the gunshot. It wasn't far away and it was followed by a scream. I took a knee and tapped one of the runes of my bandolier. The magic within it activated and my senses sharpened. It was already getting dark but now I could see clearly. I could feel subtle vibrations of bugs moving in the dirt around me, and I could smell the copper scent of gunpowder and blood, a lot of it. I took off at a sprint now, my enhanced senses allowing me to bob and weave deftly between the trees and over the bushes. Fear and adrenaline pumped through my veins. I was afraid that I was too far away and too late to stop Chisar from killing again. As I got closer to the origin of the gunshot, the smell of blood and bullets was almost overwhelming. I breathed in slightly from my nose to gather the information telling the blood was from a man further to my left. The scent told me that the man was bleeding profusely, had been drenched in sweat and had soiled himself. I broke through the underbrush to find the body. It was a bearded man decked out in camel laying on his back and staring glazed-eyed into the sky. His face was now forever frozen in a scowl of pain and terror. His right hand had a white-knuckled death grip on a bent rifle, 
the rifle's barrel twisted up at almost a right angle. His stomach had been ripped open with his guts grotesquely thrown about him. I could see parts of his intestines running up from his body to loop over a branch a couple of feet away. Blood and viscera decorated these surrounding trees like a terrible art exhibit. It was like whoever had ripped him open had thrown his insides about in a hurry, like a child had digging for his favorite toy at the bottom of a toy box. I knelt down next to the desecrated man. I bent over with my head angled so I could look into the gaping wound that used to be his chest. I found or didn't find what I expected. The heart was missing. The guts had been cleared out so the killer could reach up onto the ribcage to secure his prize. Human hearts fetched a hefty price across the gap. It could be used in a variety of potent spells. Of course, there were more parts of the human body that could be used for spells, but the heart was the most important. Chisar must have been in a hurry. He could have stripped the body clean, but he only grabbed the most valuable part before running off. I had no doubt that Chisar would come back to harvest the corpse, but right now he was killing all the humans in the area before they got away from him. He could take his time once they were all good and dead. I breathed in deeply and my powerful senses differentiated between a litany of smells to find the one that I was looking for. I picked out the foul stench of Chisar. It was a mixture of unwashed fur, rancid sweat, and decay. I stood and faced in the direction that the scent led. I said a prayer to my ancestors to help me be able to save the survivors if there were any. Three minutes later, I approached the giant two-story cabin. I quickly counted seven vehicles out front, not counting multiple four-wheelers and buggies. All of the tires on the vehicles had been flattened, and one car was missing a driver's side door revealing a seat filled with a red pool of blood and mangled meat. I crouched low and began sneaking towards the door. I rubbed a rock ruin on my belt to activate a noise-dampening aura around me. One of my runes was already activated. It worked by taking the scent of the surrounding area and having my body magically produce the scent instead of my own natural smell. It was good camouflage but the spell could be easily broken if somebody was aware of me or was mentally concentrating on me. The heavy wooden double doors that were the entrance to the cabin had been bashed open. One door now resembled kindling had exploded violently inward and across the floor of the cabin. I stepped across the threshold carefully, trying not to crunch the wooden bits of glass underfoot. The giant common room was dark, but the scent of blood and bodily fluids was overpowering. Only the low fire in the fireplace threw dancing shadows across the horrific scene. I could make out destroyed furniture and bodies strewn all about. Balloons drifted lazily above, bumping up against the ceiling. To my right was a folding table set up to block access to the stairs. Food and drinks were set up on the table, and a banner saying, Congrats, USA, on the TV show, with the Travel Channel logo and a comical Bigfoot drawing. Well, I guess my intel is old. The hunters had already gotten the TV show deal and they were all celebrating when Chissard rolled up and began a slaughter. There were more people here than expected. They looked like families. It was a celebration. 
I counted the dead and dismembered, guts torn open and hearts ripped out. It was terrible and I felt the weight of guilt and anger pulled out on me. I looked down at the frozen faces of terror and pain, a death mask on the murdered people. 21 men and women, thankfully no children. I knew Chisar was ruthless, but how did he kill so many so quickly? A back door to the cabin had been left wide open. My enhanced eyesight picked out two crumpled bodies lying out in the clearing behind the cabin. They had made it further than the others. There were also more cars parked around back, hiding their numbers. It had to have been a surprise party. The USA's family members had interrupted a boy's hunting trip to celebrate the new TV show. But where were the children? All the dead were adults, with the youngest being a clean-shaven man who lay broken over the torn couch. I glanced back at the table to see a keg of alcohol. Maybe it was a party for adults only. Maybe no children were invited. My heart sank as I spotted evidence to refute my theory. On an end table that hadn't been overturned lay a spilled juice box, and one of those spinner things that the young kids played with. I began my search anew, breathing deep of the foul stench around me, in a vain effort to detect the scent of living children. I moved into the adjoining kitchen with its large L-shaped island and bar stools. I immediately noticed a bar stool propped against the door of the pantry. I rushed over to it and paused to sniff the air again. I could smell the vivid scent of children on the other side of the door. In a haste, I tossed the bar stool away and flung the door open. The ambient light from the kitchen revealed the huddled shapes of sick children. They all began to scream their high-pitched screams. Maybe it was foolish of me to rip the door open and scare the already traumatized children, but I didn't care. I was so thankful to see their terrified, tear-stained faces. There were six of them, three girls and three boys. The oldest was a girl around 12 or 13, hugging all of them close, shielding them with her body. A ton of the boys looked the youngest at around five, with the rest in between. I held up both my hands, palms out, patting the air in a calming gesture. The screams continued for a little longer while I gently shushed them. Their wide eyes began to blink as they slowly realized I was a man and not a monster. I knelt down in the doorway and put a smile on my face. I'm here to help, don't worry. I'm here to take you away from this scary place. I explained in the calmest voice that I could muster. The children just stared back at me and the oldest girl shot daggers at me with her eyes. Who are you? The oldest girl demanded from me. She was pretty with a face full of freckles, jet black hair tied into pigtails, and a red dress with white polka dots. She also wore white knee-high socks and shiny black shoes. Her attire seemed out of place to me, but I couldn't be called an expert on what the kids were wearing these days. I'm a good guy. I was called to come help all of you get back home, I said. The children were unfazed and unconvinced. They just stared at me, huddled close together. The oldest scanned me up and down with distrust. I'm here to stop the bad thing that scared all of you. I'm going to. I paused, trying to think of something convincing and reassuring. 
I'm going to take it to Monster Jail where it can't hurt you, I finally said. Are you a cop? Asked the smallest boy, pulling his thumb out of his mouth for just that instance. Yes, I smiled. Something like that. I offered a hand for them to take. But first, I'll make sure that all of you are somewhere safe. I could take them upstairs and set up magical wards to keep them safe. It would take time, but I needed to secure the survivors before I challenged Chisar. We're not going anywhere, said the oldest girl, interrupting my train of thought. We don't know you. We're going to wait until our parents come for us. She finished in a stern voice. I was impressed by her bravery. The other kids seemed to be in shock, but she had pushed through the fear to protect them and stand up for them. She held herself like she was just standing up to a teacher at school, and not at a life or death situation. I would have to handle her differently. Please understand me. My name is Locke, like a door lock, I said with another attempt at a calming smile. Mimicking the correct emotions had always been hard for me, but I had to try. I know your parents, or at least I know the leader of USA. They hired me to come and rescue you if Bigfoot showed up. It was a lie, but I would say anything to get them to listen. We will stay here, the oldest girl demanded, her eyes intense. What is your name, sweetie? I gently asked. The girl looked disarmed. She quickly looked down at one of the younger girls and said, I'm Kayla. The younger girl's face brightened up and she announced, My name's Kayla too. She smiled up at the older Kayla with excitement. How cool is it to meet an older kid with the same name? Well, Kayla's, I paused as I heard the approaching footsteps of something outside. Staying here while I make sure that everything is okay. I rushed, saying, I quickly closed the pantry door and placed a ruin stone in front of it. The stone would magically mask the scent of the children. I spun around quickly to stalk to the middle of the living room, where I prepared for whatever was running towards the front door. I used my thumb on my right hand to rub the enchanted ring on my index finger. This woke up its potent magic to be on standby for use. All I had to do was say the red syllable to activate it. My left hand pulled out a long knife coated in a paralyzing toxin. All I had to do was nick Chisar to freeze him up for hours, and I could take him in alive if he let me. As the footsteps drew near, I realized that they were too quiet to be Chisar, and I caught the scent of a human. I quickly sheathed my knife behind me as the man crossed the doorway of the cabin. It was another bearded man in camo. His bald head and face were bleeding from multiple tiny cuts and his eyes bulged wildly. He leveled his shotgun at me and he racked the slide, ejecting a perfectly good shell. He must have been running through the woods and he was so scared he was double pumping his weapon. Who the heck are you? The man yelled, more in fear than confrontation. I work for the park, I calmly said. I'm here to get you and the children to safety. The children, he loudly asked. Where's my son? Where is he? They're safe in the pantry. I'll help all of you, I assured him. Now, will you please stop pointing that gun at me? I saw the man's eyes soften as he realized I wasn't a threat. He lowered the shotgun and let out a sigh mixed with a sob. We have to hurry, partner. The squatch is close. 
The man spoke before he was interrupted, giving a sudden grunt. I saw a glimmer of movement behind him over his shoulders. The man's arms whipped out to either side, outstretched like the god-man Jesus looked in the paintings. His shotgun was flung into the corner of the room as he stared at me in pure confusion and terror. It took me only a moment to realize what was happening. It was Chisar, and he had had an invisibility spell equipped. As soon as I realized this, the magic of the spell was broken, and I saw the monster with my own eyes. The gigantic Chisar stood behind the squirming man, towering over him. Chisar had a hold of both of the smaller human's arms with his giant mitts. The man's arms were being pulled to the breaking point outwards. Chisar easily began to lift the crying man into the air. The muscles in the monster's hairy arms flexed like corded steel. The poor man looked up to see the grinning face of Chisar the Cruel looking back down at him. Does the little monkey see me now? Chisar asked in English. He waited to see the look of terror on the man's face before yanking both of the man's arms off in a fantastic explosion of blood and violence. The sickening snap of bone followed by the ripping sound of flesh and tendons turned by stomach. Worst was the horrid guttural yelp the dying man let out before he thudded face first to the decorative carpet, blood raining around him. Chisar stood to his full height of eight and a half feet, a crooked smile across his wide face. His right eye glazed over and scarred from our last fight, while the other was a sickly yellow. His brown fur was coarse and matted with dirt, with multiple pouches and belts decorating his body. A giant lumpy sack was hanging under his arm for easy reach. I could see the red liquid leaking from it, and the bulging shapes of the organs stuffed inside. It was filled with the heart that Chisar had ripped out of these people. I put on a terrified face and held my hands out defensively. I looked a lot different from the last time that we had fought, and I wanted him to think of me as scared human prey. All I had to do was get him once with my poison dagger. Chisar was still holding the dead man's dismembered arms. He tossed them both to the ground with a wet thump. He looked right at me and gave a croaking laugh. You can drop the act, Locke, the grungy monster told me. I've had your scent this whole time. I knew that you would come. The monster tapped his nose and then his good eye. Let me see the real you, not this humey suit that you're wearing. I'm not your clan, Ken Chisar. You were exiled. I spat, but I would give Chisar what he wanted. I stood straight and grabbed a hold of the illusion crystal that I had activated. The simple word for me deactivated its magic and the false image of me disappeared to reveal my true self. Instead of a well-built black man in my mid-thirties with a black trench coat and combat boots, I grew in size and my shoulders widened. Where Chisar's fur was ratty and light brown, mine was sleek and jet black. My clothes disappeared to show my bandolier and multiple pouches strapped upon me much like Chisar. A silver circular disc hung from a chain on my neck. It was my clan's marking, a symbol of my station. Chisar the Cruel, the Council of Clans, has demanded an audience. I am thereby charged to perform the duty of my clan, Clan Bayat. 
I am compelled to take you back to be held responsible for your atrocities and your insult to the tranquility and honor of the realm. I resided with practice, like I had a hundred times before with other criminals. And Chisar just stared back flatly. I remember the speech from last time. Chisar said as he pointed at his foggy eye. You gave me this, now I want my payback. I cracked my neck and rotated my shoulders, glad to be in my true form again, glad to be a Sasquatch. I stood seven feet tall, pretty short for our kind, and Chisar stood eight and a half feet tall for our kind. But I was not worried. I had bested him in combat before. Only his magic tricks had helped him escape capture. Oh, Chis, you are always the fool, I taunted. The council also sanctioned your killing if you resisted. I looked around at the mangled human bodies around me. Truth is, I continued, I had made up my mind to kill you a while ago. At least now I won't have to lie in my report about you fighting back. I forgot you were such a humey lover, Chisar growled back. You are at a severe disadvantage this time. I heard the pantry door open up behind me and I half turned to see the polka dot Kayla approaching. Get back, Kayla, I said, not taking my eye off of Chisar. Loving humies is your weakness, Chisar said before busting out an awful laughter. I turned to look fully at him, not understanding his sudden mirth. And that's when I heard the faint swish of my poison knife being pulled out of its sheath. An instant later, I felt the knife poking against my neck. An evil laughter echoed at Chisar's own laughter from over my shoulder. I suddenly got the scent of another Sasquatch. A female Sasquatch. And that's when I fully realized my mistake. The little girl was a Sasquatch in disguise, sent to control the children, like the Pied Piper from your human fairy tales. Chisar was never alone. He had a mate. I must go on patrol now. I have some things that I must check up on. I hope that you aren't angry that I intentionally keep my identity a secret until the end. I wanted to step you into my world slowly. I'll be back soon with the end of this case. Humans have been in the dark for too long. It's time for everybody to know the horrors out there preying upon you. It's hard for me to admit, but I had made a grave mistake. I had neglected to consider Chisar's on-again, off-again mating partner. I had allowed her to trick me as she posed as a human girl. I could have easily broken her illusion spell with only a second suspicious look. My relief at finding a group of living children was so great that I never checked for deception spells like I had been trained. Only the protection of my ancestors that terrifying night keeps me breathing today. Lalith of Clan Tangara. She was in a prison camp the last time that I had run into Chisar, so I got used to him being alone, but the two had always been tight. They had a toxic relationship that turned deadly to anybody around them. Seems they only stopped fighting with each other when there were others to hunt. It was like they craved the act of inflicting pain. They amplified each other's vile nature. They pushed each other to kill. And now I was stuck between the two of them. Leilif was holding a poison knife to my throat, and the massively muscled Chisar blocked the door in front of me. I needed to activate the spell on the ring on my middle finger, 
if I could rub the front of it with my thumb. The potent magic would activate in time would freeze for everything but me. The spell was a specialty of my clan. The time freeze spell was only available to peacekeepers. It was powerful and extremely dangerous if not used correctly. Moving too fast without reciting the healing mantra in your head would cause all of your muscles to tear. My heart would be stopped during the spell. If I inhaled too deeply, my lungs would rupture. Gravity didn't affect me during the spell, so I wouldn't have to lift my leg, push it down, left, and push. The whole thing felt like swimming through thick syrup. And the most important thing was to count in your head. Count to three, count to seven, or maybe ten. Before reciting the mantra to dismiss the spell. Things got more painful the longer that you counted, more confusing. If you lost count or lost focus, your mind could be caught in a tailspin of a time-displaced psychosis or a TDP. Your mind would feel trapped for days or weeks within the spell. The effects of TDP have been described as a week-long intense migraine while being suffocated and hallucinating your worst fears. When you finally came out of the other end of the spell, you would be exhausted, completely confused, and a bit insane. But the spell would give me the edge that I needed to sidestep the blade to my throat and dart to slip around Chisar and get out of the cabin. As if Leyleaf was reading my thoughts, she used my knife to nick my ear. The paralyzing agent coating the knife worked fast and my whole body tightened up. I let out a groan as my chest contracted and I stiffened up like a board. My entire body buzzed like it was an electric current running through me. I would have toppled over like a toy soldier caught by a gust of wind, if not for Leyleaf steadying me at my feet. She let out a cackling laugh as she balanced me to stand on my own. My, my, Chiss. I always wanted a copperback to play with. One to take our time cutting up a bit by bit. She spoke in her shrill voice. She walked around into my field of view. She laughed again at my face, contorted into a toothy grimace from the poison. She was smaller than Chissar about my height, but she was lankier and had longer fur. She was also obviously a female by her prominent curves and hips. Her fur was brown and braided in certain spots. Many bone necklaces were looped around her neck. One large ivory bone pierced her nose. But her face was narrow, cheeks sunken and eyes too close together to be considered attractive by my kind. Maybe she had been attractive when she was younger. Maybe she partook of every vice from both worlds. She walked open to Chizar and he bent down so that she could rub her face against his. She looped her long arm around his neck and turned to look at me languidly. Chisar sniffed at her and said, Good to see you in your true form, baby. I can't stand the sight of Humies. Leleef reached down and grabbed the inside of Chisar's leg and watched him jump in surprise. Maybe I can use the spell to look like a Humie later for you to punish me. She cooed at Chisar with a seductive smile. I felt like I was going to puke. But the longer they were talking, the longer I had to come up with a plan. My mind raced and I felt like a rat in a cage. But this cage was sinking into quicksand. Finally, I thought of something and it was really a bad idea. Really a stupid idea, but it was my only idea that might work. 
I slowed my breathing and focused on my finger that had the time free spell. The two killer lovers prattled on about something as I tried to move all my chi to my fingers. If I could activate my ring, time would freeze around me, but my body would still be functioning within the time bubble. My consciousness would still be active, and so would my internal organs if I commanded them to work. I could intentionally lose myself in the spell and endure hours of even days of torture, long enough to work the toxin out of my system. I would have to pump my heart and flush the toxin out of my body, so I would have to breathe and let hours pass while time was at a standstill. I said earlier that this could rupture my lungs, but it could maintain them if I used my chi and mantra to accomplish it. This was stupid and extremely dangerous, but I had no other option. If I messed up, my heart would explode. This was true in extreme cases, but mostly victims of TDP came out on the other end having a stroke or a heart attack. But there was a way to survive without my heart killing me on the other end of the spell. There was a healing mantra for the heart specifically that I could recite while stuck in my mind. The trick was to not lose focus on the mantra while my mind went through pain. There would be three mantras, one for my heart, one for my lungs, and one to keep my mind from shattering completely. They would be recited in my mind constantly. If I lost the rhythm, I surely would die today. Wait, Chiss, Lilith inquired, cocking her head as she looked at me. Why isn't the fur on his back copper like all the other law-worshipping people of the Bayak clan? It was copper the last time that we fought him, wasn't it? She asked, looking up lovingly to Chisar. Chisar smirked and let out a derisive laugh. That's because Olak isn't a blood member of the clan. He's a hang-around that kissed their self-righteous butts so much that they finally let him into it. That's why he's so little and has that crappy dark fur. Lailif cackled and Chisar joined in while groping her and pulling her close to his body. Chisar began marching towards me, bending over slightly to look me in the eye. He lowered his shoulder like he was coming in for a tackle, but I knew what he was doing. He was showing me the copper-colored fur on his back. He was mocking me. It must tear you up inside, huh, Locke? Chisar spoke, now only inches away from my face, his rancid breath filling my nostrils. The fact I'm a true-blooded Bayout clan member and I've turned my back on their kin. And then there's you, a clanless mutt that had to grovel to be accepted as a peacekeeper in my clan. Chisar was right about most of it, except he didn't willingly leave the clan. Chisar was disavowed and excommunicated by the clan when he was caught violating his peacekeeper duties. He was discovered helping criminal elements in the illegal tracking department. His partner, a warden of great integrity, found out and Chisar killed him. He earned the cruel part of his moniker when he had killed his partner's family as well. He was trying to make it look like a criminal cartel that placed a hit on his partner's entire family. This was a common tactic used by a vicious criminal gang known as the Shrouded Star. The only problem was that a child survived. It was his partner's young daughter. Chisar had left her in pretty bad shape and in a coma. For two years, I protected the comatose cub from Chisar's secret attempts to kill the helpless witness. He hired assassins to kill the defenseless girl, but I protected her. We were always on the run, trying to stay ahead of the assassins. 
but Chisar used his contacts in the clan to always find her. I had my suspicions that Chisar was dirty, but I was an outsider, and Chisar was an honored blood member. So I kept the sleeping child alive until she awoke two years later. She quickly ID'd Chisar as her family's killer. That was 30 years ago, and now Chisar and I faced one another once again. I had to risk everything to stop his murderous rampage through the realms. The surviving children would either be killed or forced into a worse fate in the mills if I failed. Chisar's ugly face was smiling at me when I activated the time spell with my finger. The hatred that I felt as I looked upon his scarred continents could be the mental anchor that I needed to get through this spell with my mind intact. I know that I've introduced a lot of new concepts and information to you in only a short time, but please bear with me. I will try my hardest to interpret what happened to me during the time freeze. Later, I can break down the theoretical usage of magic and how it works, but for now, try to follow along as I give a crash course. I focused my chi on keeping my heart from rupturing. I pulled air in and out of my lungs by manually asserting myself. But the air around me was also frozen in time, so nothing fresh came in after two breaths. Thought and belief have a great effect on magic. Maybe you could call it faith. I had to believe that I was breathing air in my lungs by reciting the healing mantra in my mind, even though it felt like I was suffocating. Like Schrodinger's cat, I was dying and being kept alive at the same time. My existence was kept in balance by magic and my sheer force of will. It's hard to relate how long it felt like I was frozen, but it was terrible and seemed like an eternity. But as my mind began to hallucinate and my body screamed in panic, I focused on Chisar's ugly face. My hate would be my anchor. My mind began to dream, showing me the child Sasquatch waking up from her coma. I saw the tears in her eyes as she remembered the murder of her family. I had been around the cub's age when my family had also been murdered. I was left as an orphan without a clan just like her. I had pledged myself to the Bayot clan to be a peacekeeper and they put me through it to earn my place. But finally I became a warden and I could help broken children. My whole life played back at me but distorted and cruel even though it had been cruel enough already. Finally I came back to the point in my life where I opened the pantry in the cabin to find the human children hiding. But this time all the children were dead, their bodies ripped to pieces. Kayla, or Lalif, stood atop the pile in human form. She was holding the head of the younger girl in her hands. The evil Kayla laughed the horrid laugh in Lalif's voice. The head of the younger girl, also named Kayla, opened her dead eyes to look at me. She spoke in a raspy voice. Save us, Locke, like a door lock. Save us, Locke, like a door lock. As dark blood began spurting out of her mouth. The human child's head slowly transformed into Chisar's grinning face. I once again realized where I was, standing in the cabin surrounded by bodies. I stared at my hated enemy and realized that my body no longer had the tingling sensation of the paralyzing poison in my veins. The healing mantra repeated in my mind like a record on repeat. I felt confusion spin back up like a mental tornado that would pull me back into hallucinations and nightmares. I had to end the spell. I had to attack Chisar. 
I focused my mind to a sharp point and mentally commanded the mantra to end the time freeze. At the same time, I thrusted my right hand forward with all my might. When the spell ended, my fist moved faster than the speed of light to smash through Chisar's chest. An instant later, his blood and viscera exploded outwards, splattering the leaf behind him. Coming back to reality from being suspended in time for what seemed like a millennium had immediate and dire consequences on my body. I was no longer paralyzed, but my body might break down anyways from the shock. The clap of a sonic boom shattered all the windows in the cabin and threw both me and Chisar apart from each other. Chisar barreled into relief and they both tumbled out of the doorway into the yard as I launched back to smash into a dresser, exploding it into kindling. My head pounded and my heart raced as I let out an animalistic scream of pure pain and frustration. My right arm hung limply by my side, broken in multiple places. Training had taught me to be completely still when ending the time spell, but in my confusion I had lashed out, punching with momentum at a supersonic speed. This foolish move had shattered my arm. I fussed and screamed, my mind still thinking that I was trapped in time. I fumbled with a shaky left hand to put a small glass vial from my belt. I crushed it against my forehead and let the calming ointment run down my face. I breathed its crisp scent in, helping me focus my scattered mind. Now that my head was back on straight, it didn't mean my body was going to hold up. I was partially embedded into the thick wall directly behind me. I was crumpled up in a sitting position, my back throbbing, my arms screaming with agony. I could hear Lely freaking out in the yard. She was screaming and calling out to Chisar repeatedly. He must have looked like a mess. I couldn't help but smile in spite of my pain. The hearts, I heard her ask. I heard more growling and mumbling from Chisar before she replied. Yes, love, anything. Just stay with me while I prepare the spell to stay with me. This was not good. Leleaf was going to use forbidden blood magic to heal Chisar. The human heart could be used for a very powerful healing spell. I focused on listening for sounds coming from the killers outside. I could hear Leleaf pulling Chisar deeper into the forest, probably looking for a safe place to perform her healing spell ritual. I was already at a severe disadvantage before, but if Leleaf buffed Chisar with blood magic, and the surviving children had no chance of escaping tonight, nor I. I had to think fast. I had to do something to tip the odds in my favor. I thought of my inventory of spells and magical items that I had on my person. Most were standard issues to members of the Bayot clan. The most potent one was the time freeze ring that I had already spent. The only thing left was my amulet of ancestors. The amulet of ancestors was what it sounded like an amulet. I received it once, being accepted into the clan when I became a warden. It was only to be used in severe instances where a clan member was on the brink of death or a defeat that could cause severe dishonor to the clan. When the amulet was activated, it sent a beacon of invitation to call Bayot clan ancestors who had already passed on to the afterlife. An ancestor could choose to come to your aid or they could refuse to help. But once an ancestor lent you their strength, wisdom, and skill, it took a heavy toll on your body. You could be stricken with a chronic sickness, a loss of a limb, or even blindness. 
requesting help from the afterlife always calm with a heavy price. It was a last-ditch effort to keep yourself alive, but it still wouldn't be enough. I would still be outmatched. Chisar would be powered by blood magic, and Leyleaf was an expert with hexes and curses. I needed something else to give me an edge. And that's when I saw it. A human heart had fallen out of Chisar's bag when I hit him. It lay in a pool on the cabin floor. The red organ tempted me like how the fruit tempted your biblical Eve. It was against clan doctrine and I would be punished severely, but it would work. I could defeat Chisar and save the human children, but I had to eat the heart. I worked fast, as fast as I could in crippling pain to set up the blood magic spell. I had been forced to learn forbidden magic as a part of my job, to recognize and fight it, but I had never once performed an illegal ritual on myself. I used chalk to draw a circle and symbols of power around the heart. I began my low chant of attuning magic into the dead heart. I was using siphoning magic from my chi to activate the magic within the heart. After a couple of minutes, I felt the heart awaken and it began to pump on its own. I had done a crappy job and the spell would be weak, but I had no time left. I hoped even a low-powered heart could help me survive this night. I lifted the wet, pulsing heart to my mouth. If I eat this, it would put an end to my unblemished career. I had worked harder than any other warden to gain the respect of the Bayot clan. I would be eating human flesh of a murdered victim to perform an illegal spell. Lock, lock of the Bayot clan, I'm coming for you, came the loud, animalistic scream from Chisar. His declaration was followed by Lilith's cackling laughter. She had done it. She had healed him. I was about to die if I didn't eat the heart. I took a big bite of the gooey organ. I was surprised at how delicious it was. I shoved the rest into my mouth, eating it greedily. I felt the magic pulsing within me immediately. A great heat spread from my stomach outward. My shattered arm bones melted back together. The pains all over my body winked out of existence and I stood up and felt alive. I felt perfect. I raced outside to face Chisar under the night sky. I watched the tree line with heightened concentration ready for him to emerge. I saw movement too small and too fast. I sidestepped an ATV being launched to me. It smashed into a parked car behind me. How had Chisar done that? Had he thrown it? My question was answered as Chisar came bounding out of the tree line, his frame even more massive than before. He stopped and looked at me with crazed eyes, drool frothing from his mouth. His muscles rippled and pulsed like the heart I had eaten. You're back on your feet, good. It pleases to me to know that I made you compromise your integrity before I kill you, Chisar said in a deep voice, spittle flying everywhere. Chisar, what have you done? I asked in terror. I had never seen him like this before. My Lelief is quite the witch. And the time it took for you to enchant one heart, she had enchanted five of mine. Five? I repeated in a weak voice. His muscles continued to grow and he now stood around 13 feet high. Don't worry about me, Locke. Chisar mocked. I feel perfect. As I stood 20 feet away from the grinning, hulking Chisar, 
I knew the one heart that I had eaten wouldn't be enough to defeat Amna. The silence between us was oppressing. A cloud blocking the moon moved enough for its light to illuminate us. All I could hear was Chisar's heavy breathing and the pounding of my own heart. Come on, law dog, Chisar screamed. Come arrest me. I remained as still as a statue, but this aggravated the rabid Chisar. After I kill you, I'll have my mate scoop out your brain. My Lelief knows enough spells to look into your memories. I will find the girl. You know, the little coma girl. I'll finish what I started and kill her for sure this time. I knew this wasn't a bluff. Chisar was vindictive enough and such magic spells were possible. I had seen the Bayot clan use it on murder victims to find their killers. Fine, if you don't want to make the first move, I'll... Chisar interrupted himself by launching towards me like a freight train. Performing an attack in the middle of a sentence was one of his dirty tricks, meant to catch me off guard. But I had seen this trick before. I sidestepped easily this time, his fist almost rocking my skull loose. As his momentum carried him by, I could feel the gust of air generated by his swing sweep across my fur. He pivoted quickly and sprung back at me. I avoided his attack by batting aside his fist with both forearms while leaning away from him. Even though it was a glancing blow, both my arms jolted in pain. He was much faster and much stronger than before. I had bested him once in his normal state, but he always relied on his size and brute force to bash his way to victory. Many of my kind fought this way, it was a source of pride to match strength to strength. But I had studied many of Earth's martial arts. Something seen as dishonorable in my realm. It combined it with a Bayot fighting style. As advanced as Sasquatch society was in every way compared to humans, humans were always far more advanced in killing. Most of my society lived in relative peace. War was rare and unnatural. Not like on Earth where societies are built upon killing each other and fighting styles are honed for centuries. Chisar launched a swinging backhand at me. I ducked and came up with a hard jab right to his throat. It felt like punching a wall made out of meat and Chisar showed no effect. Chisar continued swinging at me over and over, never losing steam. I was barely dodging his lethal strikes by inches. If any connected, I would be dead. Every time that I saw an opening, I shot back with my own pinpoint attacks. My strikes were to all the pressure points and weak spots on a Sasquatch's body, but none of them ever slowed him or stunned him. His unnatural muscle mass was like a thick spongy layer of body armor. The magic flowing through him could keep him at peak performance for days. I took a chance and slowed my dodging to get a better footing to launch my own attack. I needed to put more power to take him down. Jisar squared up with me and came in low with the tackle. I jumped right back at him instead of dodging. I took a flying leap and slammed both my fists down on the top of his head with all my strength. Jisar's face was smacked down into the dirt. My fists throbbed numbly as I stepped back from him. 
My gamble had worked and redirected his forward momentum into the ground. If he were to grapple me up, I would be dead. I reached into my bandolier. I could put a freezing spell on him while he was down. Faster than anything that I had ever seen before, Chissar launched upwards by pushing up with his arms to spin to face me. A massive kick hit me right in the chest and sent me crashing through bushes and branches. I felt my ribs crack and I would have died if not for the blood magic reinforcing my body. Before I could even get up, Chissar was almost on top of me, steam rolling after me. I rolled backwards to nimbly get to my feet as his fist came down like a hammer where I once lay. I decided to completely turn my back on my vicious enemy and try to sprint further into the forest, getting some much needed space between us. I could hear him following, swatting trees out of his way like they were nothing. Branches and debris crashed all around him as he desperately tried to catch me. But the trees were growing closer and thicker together as we ran. I was deftly weaving between them and getting some distance away from the brute. After a while, the tumultuous noise at Chisar's rampage had stopped. I scrambled up to the nearest tree and turned to survey my surroundings. No sight or sound of them. I took the opportunity to enact another spell to heighten my senses, and another potion to make me lighter on my feet. I would lose half of my weight but not compromise any of my strength. It was one of the few potions not destroyed when Chisar kicked me right in the chest, crushing my bandolier. My sharpened hearing picked out the voice of Chisar chanting and it was getting louder. I couldn't make out what spell he was trying to perform. I got my answer when the large tree limb that I was standing on became fluid and nimble like a snake. The tip of the branch closest to me curled back towards me and looped around my arm. As I instinctively raised it to protect myself, the branch jerked my hand away, leaving my neck open for another snaking tree limb to loop around. I chopped the limb with my free hand to release my captured hand. The branch around my neck pulled me off the footing that I had as it tried to strangle me by hanging. I used all my strength to pull free of the branch's twisting grasp. I fell from the tree, hitting every branch on the way down. My fall was slowed due to all the branches reaching and pulling on me. I landed on a larger branch, ten feet from the ground, and perched atop it to get my bearing. I looked up and slapped away any branches coming from me. Something hard whacked me on the back of my head, and I turned to a neighbor tree reaching towards me, whipping its branches out to strike me. I was dazed and losing my footing as the tree swayed back and forth, trying to throw me off. So I jumped to another thickly branched tree that wasn't attacking me. As soon as I touched the new tree, it reacted the same as the last and sent all of its branches to lash out. I jumped again and realized the spell was broken as soon as I got a couple of yards away. I landed on the ground with a loud thud. I thought that I would be safe from activating the killer trees as long as I didn't touch them, but even the twigs and bushes grabbed at me. I ran, tearing through them like thick spider webs. I ran, trying my hardest to not to navigate through the thickly packed trees, but my large frame was harassed by them, with branches whipping and jabbing into my thick fur.
For some reason, the trees and bushes stopped trying to tangle me up and I paused to look behind me. It seemed like the enchantment spell in the trees had ended. I kept a sharp eye out for Chisar. The trees were packed so close together that it would have been impossible for him to steamroll towards me without me hearing him a mile away. I was trying to catch my breath while picking twigs out of my fur. I scanned the woods around me by slowly turning in a 360. I grew angry with myself. What was I doing? Was I just running away? Just going to escape only to lick my wounds and sulk? No, I was here to execute justice and stop the two killers. I wondered why the onslaught had stopped. What were Chisar and the Leafs' next moves? The silence was killing me, but maybe this gave me time to activate my amulet. I lifted the amulet from around my neck to hold it at eyesight. I would be lying if I said that I wasn't nervous. I was an outsider to the clan and I had caused myself a great dishonor by eating the heart. I was afraid of the further shame of being turned down by my ancestors. If word of my plea for help was ignored, I would lose all the credibility that I had worked for decades to build. Copperback, are you getting tired? Came the leaf's voice from behind me. I spun around to stare at the tree closest to me. It took me a second for my eyes to make out a face protruding from the tree. It was her face, the tree bark, forming to look like her. We knew that you would be coming. We knew that you would run towards these screams of dying humans without a second thought. The face in the tree said to me. I looked around to see her face and all the trees around me all staring back. Magic like this must have taken a while to set up. I won't let you hurt Chiss again. Tree Lilief screamed. He may be mad I didn't let him kill you, but you are too tricky of a copperback and too unpredictable. Something you probably inherited from your dead clan's blood. The wooden face smiled. My magic has been spread all throughout these woods. You were hexed the moment you left the cabin. So now you die, Locke. The tree that I was staring at began to smoke. Flickers of orange and red embers could be seen spreading from the smiling face outwards. Bits of sizzling bark fell off to reveal the glowing hot embers underneath. The leaves, burning face, laughed at me as I took a few cautionary steps back. A ruin on my belt vibrated sharply. It meant danger. I sidestepped behind a nearby tree for cover. A split second later, the burning tree exploded violently. Burning wood embedded itself into my shoulder that wasn't protected by cover. I heard a thunderous rumble as the tree fell towards me to crash into the tree that I was hiding behind. I jumped away from both trees as they both cracked and fell towards me. I quickly scrambled on all fours out of the impact zone of the falling trees. As I was still on all fours, I used the stability of another tree to stand myself up. This was a bad idea because it started glowing orange, with smoke rising from the cracks between the bark. I began my sprint as tree after tree in my proximity began to glow and explode. I pushed my body to run faster as the heat waves from the explosion scorched over me. I felt the burning hot debris pelting my back, and I knew that my fur was on fire because I could smell it. I pushed and pushed through the exploding trees, 
but I was losing steam and the trees were getting closer and closer as they fell. Even in my rush, I noticed the trees always fell in my direction. Finally, I saw what might be my salvation. Two large boulders, one leaning on the other, jutting five feet out of the ground. I leapt out of the tree line to perch upon the rocks with a balance unnatural to my size. The explosion stopped and I quickly patted out the small fires all over my body. I was grateful for my luck when the rock underfoot didn't start glowing. I felt that I was safe for the time being. I deduced the explosion spell was triggered by being in close proximity to the trees. I was in a small clearing with the woods in a three yard radius around me so at least I knew the reach of the spell now. I stared at the would-be bombs thickly packed around me. I was still at risk of them falling on me if they exploded. I knew that I had to get out of these woods. I had seen a decent-sized clearing about two miles east of here, but I didn't know if I could sprint the whole way and not get caught up in an explosion. You think you're safe? You think that I can't see you? bellowed the tree's voice from the woodline surrounding me. And that's when my worst fear happened. All the trees began to glow around me. I felt like I had activated another time freeze spell, because time had slowed down as my mind raced to think of something. I quickly jumped down besides the rock and crouched facing them, making myself small. I hugged myself tight and prayed for safety as the trees exploded with a monumental bang. The earth shook under me and the sound of falling timber rained down. I felt a stabbing jolt of pain as a branch slashed on my back. I screamed but balled myself tighter. When I opened my eyes, I was locked away in darkness. I was in a tomb of dead wood. Of course, they all fell down towards me but the boulders propped them up enough to save me. So now I sat trapped and bleeding under a makeshift teepee of fallen trees. Barely any moonlight was visible through the limbs and branches, and I had just barely enough room to lift my head. The position that I was stuck in was horrible on my broken ribs. I tried to uncurl myself only to feel the tree branch jab into my new wound. I grabbed my amulet in both my hands. My back throbbed with pain and the dust clogged my eyes and nose. I had to use the amulet. Chissar and the leaf would be coming to finish me off. I rubbed the amulet and placed it to my forehead. I beseeched the help of my ancestors during these mortal trials. I repeated it over and over. At first, I thought that nobody would answer. I wasn't a clan blood member. Would the oldest, more traditional ancestors even recognize me as one of them? But the amulet began to vibrate and I heard a low hum in my ears, like a million tuning forks all at once. Suddenly, my confined space disappeared and I was in a spacious area of foggy gray. The floor under me felt like water but was solid enough to hold my weight. I looked around, trying to see anything but a thick fog. I was in the gray, a purgatory plane between the living and the dead, but it seemed that nobody was here to answer my cry for help. Who is this Blackford imposter that cries out to us? came a deep voice in the old tongue. A blinding light assailed me from a distance. It was so bright that I couldn't look directly at it. I could only see shadow outlines of figures standing together through squinted eyes. 
I racked my brain for the words to respond. We all had to learn the old tongue during training, but that was decades ago. I am Locke of the Bayak clan, first in my name. My old clan is all but gone. I have written the clan's doctrine on my heart and have been granted membership. I seek help in defeating an ex-clan member who has committed sacrilege to our tenants. Yeah, our blood children have granted you membership through your action and character. Came another voice. But maybe it was in folly. You have within you the blood of a slain human. You have partaken of the forbidden magics to serve your selfish desires, with no thought of the dishonor that you bring all of us. No, I did it for the chit. Lastly, the stray asks us to help him kill the blood member. Another voice interrupted. Even if he is a fallen blood member, he still has more favor than you and your tainted magic. At this, I said nothing. I didn't even want to argue my case. I was pissed. The old spirits were stuck in their ways and ancient prejudices. I should have let the dead stay dead. I calmly stood and tried to look into the blinding light. Then send me back. I know of my own integrity. If I die and you don't accept me, I will go into the void, knowing that my honor is clean. I proclaimed as I turned my back on the light, showing them that I was done with their self-righteous judgment. Wait, Locke was it? Came a voice in English. I thought it was strange because only in the last 500 years had English been taught to us. I have turned to face the light. Yes, of the Bayot clan, I said sharply. I could see the outline of another shadow closer than the rest. You protected the girl, the voice asked. Yes, I said confused, thinking of the girl that I had protected during her coma. She is alive and thriving. She has a life mate and a girl cub of her own now. The shadow began to approach me. As it got closer, the dimmer the light shined behind it. As it got you three yards from me, the light had vanished and I could make out the tall and gangly figure. It was a male Sasquatch with long brown fur. I was shaken by its bloodied throat dripping endlessly down its fur. He looked at me with gray and blue eyes, rare to my kind. Isaac the girl that had blue and gray eyes. It was her father. Now I remembered him. I had only seen him dead in his home with his throat slashed and his hands chopped off. You are Peacekeeper, Viskin, I stated. The solemn Sasquatch nodded his head slightly in affirmation. It's Chisar, I told him. He and his mate have killed dozens of humans and are going to keep the young for the mills. Oh, Chis, the dead Sasquatch said with sadness. A creature of habit. He can't stop himself from hunting everyone around him. I stared at the dead peacekeeper, my kin and colleague. I had heard that he was honorable, but was he tough enough to help me win the fight? I hate to seem like a snob since nobody else would help me, but Chisar had killed him once already. His demeanor was downcast, blood from his throat and arms ending in stumps made him look pathetic. But when he looked up at me, his eyes were filled with anger. He poisoned me, Viskin yelled. I realized that I had screwed up. He could read my thoughts. He knew that he couldn't beat me in combat, so he poisoned me and my family with his bare hands. The enraged Viskin yelled, 
spittle flying from his mouth. He could have poisoned them too, but he likes the violent thrill of it. He enjoyed destroying my wife and children. He enjoyed putting my daughter into a coma. When he cut off my hands, it held a double meaning. Viskin said as he held up his stumps for me to see. It wasn't just to make it look like an assassination by the shrouded hand, but a personal insult towards me. He cut off my hands because of the techniques that I had mastered. Techniques that always scared him and made him doubt if he could take me one-on-one. Well, what was that? I asked cautiously. Perform the mantra to accept my help and I'll show you, Clan Ken. Viskin demanded. He stepped up to me only inches away. His sadness turned into a blazing anger. Do you want to kill him or not? I recited the ending mantra to leave the gray, the realm between the living and the dead. Now I was coming back to your earth with backup from a Sasquatch previously murdered by Chisar. I opened my eyes to be greeted by pitch darkness and pain shooting through my ribs and back. I was still trapped under the fallen trees. I didn't know what I expected after using the amulet, but I didn't feel different at all. Maybe I expected to feel stronger or wiser, but I was still in pain and I had no idea what to do. A muscular hand shot down from above, busting through the wooden prison to grab me by the nape of my neck. I was yanked up through the hole violently. The branches scraped and tore at me as I was lifted high into the moonlit sky, free from my wooden prison. Chisar held me up with one hand high in the air. We were upon a canopy of fallen trees. Somehow all the branches had been flattened like corn stalks in a crop circle. It wasn't just the trees closest to me that had fallen, but even the trees in a 50-yard radius. All of them fallen and pointing inward towards me at the center. The tree limbs magically flattened for Chisar to find me. There he is, Chisar screamed. You better be glad he isn't dead from your tricks. Chisar spat at Leleve, who was sulking behind him. I didn't want to hurt you anymore, love. Leleve argued meekly behind him, looking for a scolded child. She tried to come and hang from Chisar's arm, but he grabbed her roughly by the fur on the top of her head and tossed her away. She stumbled and tripped on the unsteady footing. Her leg broke through the canopy of flattened branches and she fell partially through to catch painfully by her waist. She cried out in pain and sorrow for her mate's rebuke. You interfere again and I'll break your jaw, Chisar warned. The insanity in his eyes was greater than I had ever seen. I fully believed Chisar would viciously beat Lilith if she did anything else. While dangling in the air like a child, I threw my hardest punch to Chisar's face. It had the same effect as punching a furry slab of iron. I've never eaten a fellow Sasquatch's heart before. Chisar sneered as he jabbed his finger into my chest, digging into my skin. But I think I've developed a taste for the thing. I screamed and grabbed his hand with both of mine, trying to pull his hand away from digging deeper into my skin. I began to panic and wonder why the Viskin wasn't helping. Nothing was helping. A bright flash of an image appeared in my mind, 
It was the palm of a Sasquatch's hand where the fur didn't grow. The hand had an ornate tattoo of a circular symbol, colored in a vibrant teal. Place your blood in the middle, a voice in my head had urged. The next mental image was of a bloody symbol being drawn on the tattooed palm with the pointer finger of the offhand. Slap your palms together to activate the spell. Viskin's voice instructed, I'll perform the chant. You rip him apart. I did as commanded, dabbing my left hand near the wound where Chisar was digging his fingers into me. I held up my right palm, but I didn't see the teal tattoo. I felt the mental urge to proceed from Viskin, so I drew the blood symbol anyways. Chisar's wicked smile faltered for a moment as he saw what I was doing. He had a look of surprise and concern. He had recognized the spell. I slapped my palms together and had no idea what to expect. Viskin's spirit chanted an unfamiliar chant in my head as the tips of my fingers began to glow yellow-red and then blue. An immense heat radiated from the last digits of my fingers on both hands. I could feel the intense heat everywhere but my glowing fingertips. I licked Chisar square in the eye and growled a hateful growl that wasn't entirely my own. I grabbed his hand sticking into my chest with my left. My fingers burnt through his muscled forearms like a hot knife through butter. He screamed in pain. I made my right hand into a knife and intended to jab it into Chisar's eyes. He quickly flung me away from the grip that he had on the back of my neck. I struck out, but he reacted too quickly. He tossed me so fast that my outstretched strike was just barely out of reach when I threw it. I flew high to land on a fallen long with the balance of a gymnast. My weight spell must have still been activated. I gritted my teeth as I prepared to launch back at him. Don't make a fist. Viskin's spirit yelled. I realized that I was about to make two of them out of muscle memory. I surely would have burned my hands off if I did. How is this? Chisar asked. He stepped back and broke through the weaker branches to stumble slightly. Chisar must have finally figured out what was happening because a look of terror crossed over his face. The amulet. Viskin. He croaked in a harsh voice. He was the only one who knew how to weld the scalding touch. He still is. I answered back coolly as I held my arms out wide. Superheated fingers splayed. I ran at him again and he tried to backpedal, but his large frame kept causing him to break the branches underneath and trip up. I slashed at him with my fingertips. I carved glowing orange chunks out of him. He would swing his mighty attacks only for me to leap away and flank around him and burn him again. After about two minutes of me jumping around and using Scalding Touch, I had cauterized the tendons in his arms and shoulders. Chisar was slumping, stuck waist high in the brambles. He had deep, raking burns all over his body. He breathed heavily, looking up at me in surrender. I stood on a fallen tree in front of him. I looked around to see no sign of Lelief. Your maid is forsaking you, I said coldly to him. You are on your own and it's two against one now. Please, Chisar panted. 
I surrender, don't kill me. He was pathetic. The giant killer had been reduced to a sad, burnt lowlife. I felt a twinge of sadness for him. Maybe I would take him into stand trial before the council. You didn't show me mercy. My mouth spoke on its own. My wife, my son, even my daughter. I screamed at him in Viskin's voice. Before I knew it, I lunged forward to grab Chisar by the sides of his head. My fingers burned into him. He screamed, unable to lift his arms to defend himself. As I plunged, both glowing thumbs into his eyes, bursting them on contact. He screamed and screamed as his head smoked, and I drove my fingers up into his brain. He went limp and I held him up burning, the top of his skull beginning to glow. It's over, Viskin. He's dead. I yelled out loud. Only then did I release the body to slump backwards, smoke coming out of his eye holes. Yes, it is done, Peacekeeper Locke. The vengeful spirit told me. I thank you for giving me back my honor. You never lost it, Viskin. I replied to the ghost in my head. Do you still require my assistance? Viskin asked. No, I don't think so. The leaf has probably already fled across the gap by now. It was an honor, Locke of Clan Bayat. Too bad we didn't get to work together in my past life, the voice said. And with that, Viskin fell silent, never to speak again. My fingers stopped glowing and I stood there looking at Chisar's dead body. I felt the pain and fatigue creep back up on me. Now that the adrenaline was out of my system, my body was punishing me. I had some minor pain dampening spells still on my belt. I had the time to perform them and then check on the kids, but this plan was discarded as soon as I heard the thrumming sound of two helicopters approaching. I looked up to see two black choppers buzz over the clearing, heading towards the house. I pushed myself to begin running after them. I didn't know who they were, but I wasn't taking any chances. There were humans on this side of the gap that helped the interdimensional trafficking. My body screamed at me as I pushed myself to run further, and then I got to the clearing around the cabin. I saw both the choppers hovering while dropping down zip lines. I was almost to the busted front doors when the first black-clad soldier hit the ground. He turned in time to see me backhand him off his feet and I darted inside. I skidded to the pantry and saw my ruined stone was still there. Good. It means they didn't run away and they're still inside. I could hear the clamor of soldiers calling out orders to each other. Before I knew it, my fingertips began to glow blue again. I didn't know how many armed men were out there, but I would kill them all if they made me. I had come too far to lose the kids now. A flashbang rolled in and I turned my head to the side. I was thankful that my sharpened senses spell had run out when... A loud bang attacked my eardrums. When I opened my eyes, eight people had entered the cabin and they were pointing automatic rifles at me. Freeze, don't make one move. A soldier screamed in a distorted voice. His face was covered by a gas mask, just like all the others in his squad. If you take one step towards these kids, I'll rip your face off. I shouted back at them. It was only around five seconds, but it felt like an eternity as we stared at each other.
It was a standoff that would only end with more blood. I was already planning the quickest way that I would kill them all. Hello, Locke. Do you think we can both do our jobs without killing each other? Said a gas mask wearing soldier to my right. At first, I didn't understand him until I realized that he was speaking in the language of the indigenous people, the ones that had ruled here long ago. The soldier lowered his weapon and removed his mask to reveal the familiar face. It was Rising Eagle, a friend from this side of the gap. My fingers stopped glowing and I dropped my hands. Rising Eagle gestured for his men to do the same. That's new, he said, pointing at my hands. He walked forward and extended his hand for a handshake. Can you still shake an old friend's hand with that new track? I smiled as the feeling of relief flooded me. Not all reality wardens were Sasquatch. The humans did their part too. Hey, sorry we didn't get here sooner. Rising Eagle said as he shook my giant hand. Some Mavs were trying to open up a portal to the kingdoms. Amit pitched a fit for us to help them. I informed Rising Eagle about killing Chisar and the Leaf fleeing. I told him the kids were hiding behind me. Rising Eagle informed me the kids would be given amnestics and they would be taken care of. One of the medics treated my injuries while I performed minor healing spells before I left to return to my own world. A report had to be made. It was a terrible night with too many close calls and dead civilians, but at least the kids were safe and Chisar was dead. I knew the humans on this side could handle the rest. As I walked back into the woods to find my gateway, I wondered what ailment I would suffer from using the amulet. But even if it took all my senses, it would still have to be worth it. So, that's the quick wrap up of my case. But a word of warning, humans. This is the reason that I started writing this. Stop looking for Bigfoot. You might be lucky and find me, but most likely, you'll be killed or taken by others who are not so friendly. Amplify your career through training and development solutions specifically designed for federal government professionals. From courses to help you attain or retain certification, to individualized coaching services, to programs that hone your leadership skills and business acumen, Management Concepts optimizes your professional development. Online, in person, individually, or groups, it's training that's measurably better. Learn more at managementconcepts.com. That's managementconcepts.com. So, you've got an idea for a business. The store of your dreams. There's just one thing to figure out. Everything. That's why Shopify's all-in-one commerce platform makes it easy to sell online, in person, and everywhere else. Sell on social media. Source products with an app to get that first sale feeling. It's the only solution that gives you everything you need to sell everywhere you want. So when you're ready to bring your idea to life, power it up with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash listen. Attention parents, your children are not in danger, everything is under control. Written by Kyle Harrison Dear parents or guardians, In compliance with the 85th Legislature, Senate Bill 1566, Section 14, Subchapter A, Chapter 38, 
Section 38.031 We are required to inform parents that a student or students in your child's grade level have been found to have had lice. There is no law in our state that addresses excluding children with head lice from school. Lice are not a public health threat. They do not carry disease. As such, the Department of Health and State Services does urge school districts to ensure that its policies and procedures do not cause children to miss class unnecessarily. Our goal is to keep all parents informed about identified cases of head lice and how to treat and prevent them. Our challenge is to accomplish this without causing embarrassment and isolation for students who suffer from cases of head lice. Thank you in advance for working with our school to make sure that we have the best possible environment for our students. I've dealt with head lice before. Some girl brought it over when Misty, my oldest, had a sleepover about two years ago. I thought that I knew what to do and since the email came through on Thursday night, I thought that I would have time to handle it. I immediately got Jonah out of his school clothes and told him to get in the shower and soap his hair thoroughly. My plan was to run down to CVS and buy some strong medication. Stuff that would surely do the trick. That never happened. Instead, as I tossed his clothes in the dryer and then began to do the same with his bedsheets, I realized that he was taking longer in the shower than normal and I shouted to him, Hey, is everything okay? When he didn't respond, I became worried. I rattled the door and eventually got it loose, running into the bathroom to see that he had collapsed unconscious in the shower. Immediately, I dialed 911 and turned off the water. I started checking him for injuries, especially around the head. That was when I saw what the school had said was lice. These did not look like tiny little insects that I had seen on Misty. They looked a little bigger with large pinchers and a little more aggressive than a typical head lice. It looked like when Jonah had washed his hair, that they had dug into his scalp to keep from drowning and caused his skin to become even more agitated. The paramedics came in less than 10 minutes and we made it to the hospital in about 30. I told them what I saw and they ordered some tests. When they got back and we were waiting our results, I asked him how he was feeling. Like my whole head is on fire, he had admitted. They had placed bandages on the irritated skin, and I told him to lean forward so I could get a better look. Pulling the gauze away, I found myself stifling back a wail as I saw the redness in his scalp was now much worse and the strange tiny creatures that were digging into his skin had gone even deeper, creating cuts in his flesh. I called for a nurse and asked if there was a way for us to shave his hair and begin immediate treatment, but she insisted that I needed to wait for a nurse. Jonah kept scratching and scratching, even making himself bleed, and I eventually could not wait anymore and I went to find the shavers myself. 
On the way to the nurse's station, I ran into one of the techs that had run a scan on Jonah, and I asked if the results were in. He told me no, but offered to assist me with the shaving. We hurried back to the room, and I told Jonah to turn his head as we took off the wrappings, and the tech covered his mouth in shock. It looked like the top of my son's head was peeling off and rotting the way in old banana wood. The scars and bruises seemed to cover the part of the scalp that we could see, and something told me when we began to shave things it would be even worse. I told Jonah to remain still as the tech started the process, but it wasn't easy. I could see that when the blade was cutting his hair, it was also causing pain to my son. I gripped his hand and tried to hold him, but it wasn't working. The creatures were burrowing deeper into his scalp, and when we got down to the bare skin, I could see that everything we were doing was only causing more harm than good. I told the tech to stop. Tears welled into my eyes as I held Jonah, and he moaned in pain. That kept going for 20 minutes until the main ER doctor entered the room with the results. His face told me that it wasn't what I would want to hear. We've never seen anything like this before, he said as he showed me what the scans had revealed. The insects were larger than I'd anticipated, longer and cylindrical. They had dug straight into my son's skin and even hit his bone, and it looked like they were intending on going deeper. This could cause brain damage if left untreated. I recommend a full round of broad-spectrum antibiotics and then we scheduled Jonah for surgery to get these removed, the doctor said. I asked him how long that might be and he told me the only pediatric surgeon wasn't available until Monday. Meaning my son will be writhing in pain and experiencing possible damage to his mental health because no one here is qualified, I asked in shock. They admitted there was little more they could do, but they were attempting to contact other hospitals in the Tri-County area. I sat there for an hour trying to decide what I should do as Jonah continued to try and scratch. Eventually, I asked the nurses to bind his hands to the stretcher, as I realized that his nails were ripping off bits of flesh. The nurses and other staff seemed to begin to give us a wide berth and I got the idea that they were frightened by his unusual condition as well. Another hour passed and they gave Jonah a sedative to let him rest as I checked his head. The damage these things had done to my son's head was beyond horrific. They had caused large scars to cover every bit of his forehead and cranial area eating up his skin and burning away at his tissue and muscle. I could even see faint hints of his skull where there was bruising. In that moment, I sobbed and took out my phone. Desperation made me call Jonah's dad, someone that I hadn't talked to in almost two years. I can pull some strings to get him to a surgeon, but you'll have to drive all night to get there, he said. I told him that it was worth it and then demanded they let me check Jonah out so that we could begin the drive. Of course, the doctors advised otherwise, but I wasn't about to just let him lay there suffering for a few more days. 
Putting him in the back seat of the car, I gave him pillows and blankets to keep him comfortable and began the drive. It was so late and I was exhausted but I pushed through, constantly checking the rearview mirror to see his condition. He woke up about an hour into the drive, moaning in pain and asking for me to pull over. Sweetie, I can't, I'm trying to get you to a doctor, I told him. He began to vomit blood in the back seat and I braked hard. Putting my flashers on, I got out of the way of oncoming traffic and I unbuckled. It hurts so bad, mom, he said. I offered him the last of the pain pills as I stared at the bandages around his head. They were soaked in blood from the damage that these insects were causing. He tried his best to swallow it and then I laid him down and gave him a McDonald's bag to keep puking into. I had to focus on the drive. My mom called about 10 minutes later, checking on us and reporting that Misty was sound asleep. How's our boy? Did you get the lice handled? She asked. She seemed to think my trip to the hospital was an overreaction, and before I could explain the situation, he vomited again and I hung up. All Jonah could do was shake and scream, begging me to give him more medicine, but I had nothing to offer. I sped up, placing my emergency flashers on. I had to get to my ex-husband as quickly as possible. I made it there by 3.30 in the early morning and Drizzle came down as I pulled my car up to the ER that he told me to head for. Jonah had been scratching again and the bandages were torn apart. His head hardly had any skin left and it was now just a mangled mess of blood and loose hair and tissue. He pulled back his bloody nails and I saw that bits of bone from his skull were also tearing off. As the rain hit his scalp, he shuddered in agony. My God, my ex said when he saw how bad it was, and they rushed our son toward an operating room. He had dozens of questions, but neither me or the surgeons had any answers. As they began to get Jonah prepped for an attempt at extracting these bugs, but we got more bad news. The scans reveal that these things are like fishing barbs. They burrow deep through the skin and the tissue and then latch on to prevent themselves from being taken away easily. There is a risk that this could cause more harm to your son than good. The head surgeon told us. I was trying my best not to hyperventilate. Just do whatever you have to do to help Emma, I begged. They promised they would and we had to sign a mountain of paperwork, which gave them consent and, of course, waived any liability. Jonah was unconscious from the pain, but his body was still reacting to it. His stats were rising along with his core body temperature. I was certain that the insects were already attacking his brain. Thankfully, my ex-husband didn't use the opportunity to spew hateful words to me about being an awful parent. Instead, we were both in an almost catatonic state as we waited for some good news. But good news never came. The doctors came out about an hour later to inform us that 
Jonah was not showing any signs of brain activity. His body is still fighting, but it doesn't look like he'll be returning home the way that he came here. They had admitted. One of the surgeons said this gave them an opportunity to quit being cautious, and they began to extract these slimy, writhing bugs. When I got a chance to see one before they killed it, the thing reminded me of a long, thin centipede covered in prickly needles. I'm certain that it hissed and shrieked as the doctors crushed it and continued to remove the others. Six hours later, and there were no bugs left, and our son was in a medically induced coma. It felt like I was dying seeing him suffer, and I felt powerless, not knowing if he was going to be okay. I found sleep only thanks to exhaustion. When I woke up, it was this morning and I charged my phone. Mom had called me twice. Hey, sorry I missed your call. Jonah's fine. I said groggily. No, no, it's fine. I just wanted to give you a heads up about Misty. I became more alert almost instantly. Is something the matter? Well, it's just that she was complaining about her head itching really badly. What? Is she okay? My heart dropped at her response. Oh, I'm sure she's fine. I sent her to school. You know, she has a field trip today. I mean, it's only head lice, right? Thank you so much for listening to this week's episode. I hope that you enjoyed it. Wherever you may be in the world, I hope that you're staying safe and sound. And as always, stay creepy. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. With the Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car, before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.